The portion of South America that is currently within the borders of Brazil has been occupied by humans for at least 11,000 years based on remains that have been discovered in the area and archaeological evidence of early human rock art, carvings, tools, and other such artifacts, including mound-based buildings that, when combined with other evidence, gestures at sophisticated social stratifications that seemed to be primarily based on chiefdoms, similar to hierarchies found elsewhere around the world at that point in social and technological development. The Marajoara, sometimes called the Marajo culture, was especially successful and prevalent in what is today northern Brazil, on an island at the mouth of the Amazon River. They would seem to have hit their peak in terms of population and development between 800 and 1400 AD, but there's evidence of human settlement on that island as far back as 1000 BC. Theirs was not the only indigenous group active in the region when the Portuguese arrived. In 1500 AD, though, an estimated 7 million people, mostly semi-nomadic, except for the aforementioned Marajoara, who were more settled, were living in what is modern-day Brazil, when on April 22, 1500, Portuguese explorers claimed the area in the way of European conquerors at that time. Claims that were generally respected by other European conquerors, but which did not take the will of the locals living in those claimed areas into account. And they founded their first local colony a few decades later, in 1532. And this was a full colonization effort, which involved tamping down on the indigenous people, often by intentionally stoking existing tribal conflicts, setting them against each other in order to gain regional advantage, and setting up what would become sugarcane plantations, worked at first by the colonizers themselves, then by employed or enslaved locals, then, by the mid-16th century, by slaves imported from sub-Saharan and western Africa, those imports funded by what became known as the New World Triangle Trade System, which generally meant American colonies like this one would export sugarcane to make rum, the profits from that sugarcane would be used to buy manufactured goods that would be shipped to Africa, where they would be traded for slaves, and those slaves would then be shipped back to the Americas, mostly to islands in the Caribbean and parts of South America, like Brazil at first, but then eventually to the southern portion of North America as well, where the slaves would work on various plantations, like the aforementioned sugarcane plantations in Brazil. This Europe-favoring trade setup heavily influenced the shape Brazil would take, both in terms of its economy, which was almost completely reliant on sugarcane crops, until the 17th century, at which point it became more reliant on gold and other raw materials as well. And in terms of its demographics, its population was a combination of indigenous people, Portuguese colonists, slaves imported from various parts of Africa, and eventually, late-arriving immigrants from elsewhere in Europe, most of them seeking their fortune during the late 17th century Brazilian gold rush, or just after that, as part of a flood of new arrivals wanting to claim plots of land for settlement. 
often with the intention of establishing their own plantations or similar raw materials-based businesses. In 1807, both the Spanish and the French, the latter under Napoleon, were menacing the borders of Portugal, so the Portuguese royal family and their court moved from Lisbon in Portugal to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil which was still quite colonial and bare-bones at the time, but which quickly developed with this new royal arrival and the flood of people and money that came with them. In short order, banks and stock exchanges and other such financial institutions were set up in Brazilian cities, and this in turn opened these cities up for international trade. Previously, they were operating under monopoly conditions with the Portuguese government, having to trade with them almost exclusively. After that war in Europe that was surrounding Portugal had ended, the leadership of other European countries demanded that the Portuguese royal family and their court return to the continent, saying basically that it was unseemly for such people to live in a colony. But the royal family had come to like it in Rio de Janeiro, so they declared Brazil to be part of a monarchy called the United Kingdom of Portugal, Brazil, and the Algarves, making their new home a full-on state rather than a colony, for official purposes in 1815. This did not go over well back in Lisbon, where the political leadership was irked that this colony, which was far bigger geographically than Portugal, was getting all this new prestige and power and wealth, and they were being insulted, basically, by a royal family that didn't want to come back home. And this led a few years later to what became known as the Liberal Revolution of 1820. This revolution started in the northern Portuguese city of Porto and then spread to the rest of the country. And it was mostly peaceful, but it was impactful enough that the Portuguese crown was convinced to return home in 1821. Basically, liberalization had become popular in the area, which in this context meant that the folks who had lived under a royal family were thinking, why shouldn't we have a constitution like some of these other nations that are writing and formalizing their own into law, especially when our royal family isn't even here when they're insulting us in this way? So the royals went back home, but that did not stop the process of liberalization in Portugal, which resulted in a constitution being ratified in 1822, and the king of Portugal, now back home in Lisbon, swore an oath to uphold that constitution the same year. The king's son, Pedro, though, was still back in Brazil, ostensibly running things as the regent of the now kingdom of Brazil. There were political and diplomatic misunderstandings and conflicts between the newly constitution-having government of Portugal and the kingdom of Brazil, which was resisting efforts by that new constitutional Portuguese government to make them a colony again, stripping away the prestige and rights and other such benefits from an entity that they saw as being, in many ways, far less than the homeland, and not yet mature enough to be off on its own operating independently as its own state. This pissed off the Brazilian government, including Prince Pedro, who declared Brazil's independence from Portugal, again, which was being run by his father, in September of 1822, the same year Portugal ratified their constitution and Pedro's father swore to uphold that constitution. The following month, Pedro was declared Emperor of Brazil, and the Kingdom of Brazil thus became the Empire of Brazil. 
The Brazilians then fought the Portuguese in what later became known as the Brazilian War of Independence. This conflict lasted from 1822 until mid-1824, at which point the Portuguese in Brazil surrendered to the Brazilian forces, and Portugal officially recognized Brazil as a foreign state in late 1825. In 1831, Emperor Pedro of Brazil was fed up with local politics, which were consistently teetering away from empire and toward some kind of republic, and he was not okay with what was happening with the royal succession plan back in Portugal, where he was, as the king of Portugal's eldest son, meant to be the next king of Portugal as well. But his younger brother was saying that he should be king instead because Pedro had forfeited his succession rights when he declared independence as emperor of Brazil, and neither country wanted a monarch that lorded over both countries. This conflict resulted in Pedro establishing his daughter, Maria, who was seven years old at the time, as the queen of Portugal, and his son, who was five years old at the time, as the second monarch of Brazil, with the title Dom Pedro II. Having a child technically as the head of state, and Brazil thus being run by the National Assembly until he came of age, emboldened quite a few rebellious groups who wanted to install a republican government instead of a monarchy in Brazil. So the next decade or so was a tumultuous period with rebellions and revolts popping up all over the country, and this period mostly ended when the still young Pedro II was prematurely given emperor-scale powers in 1841. But at that point, the dominant controversies shifted from the type of government installed in Brazil to the issue of slavery, which was still fairly fundamental in Brazil at the time, but quickly becoming quite a bit less popular. In 1850, the Atlantic slave trade, which was a key part of that aforementioned triangle trade setup, was closed by the British, though it took another several decades for the practice to be dismantled in Brazil. That formally happened in mid-1888, not quite 30 years later. A series of South American wars colored the latter part of the 19th century in Brazil, including one that led to independence for Uruguay, and another conflict with Paraguay that absolutely devastated the local economy and the population for years. In part due to those conflicts, and the upset to the economy from the ending of slavery, and the resultant power that the military wielded in Brazil in the aftermath of these two big shakeups, the military launched a successful coup against the Brazilian government in November of 1889 and established what they called a republic, but which in practice was a military dictatorship that held fake elections that were predetermined by the government. They also eliminated all vestiges of a free press and eventually navigated the country into an economic bubble that spiraled into an economic crisis, which in turn fed a series of mutinies by primarily naval officers who led military revolts against that military government, which they said were illegally holding on to power in violation of the Constitution that was ratified by that same government and then ignored. Following that military revolt against the military government, a civilian government took power in 1894 and held that power 
for several decades, until 1930, when a relatively peaceful, stable period was upended by financial and political instability that fed into revolts, which in turn catalyzed a coup led by an unsuccessful political candidate whose running mate had been murdered, likely by the incumbent government, and who had the support of the military. The unsuccessful candidate who launched the coup, Getulio Vargas, was only supposed to take control of the government temporarily, but as often happens in such circumstances, he then shut down Congress, got rid of the Constitution, and declared a state of emergency that never ended, and which gave him emergency powers, allowing him to, among other things, replace all state governors with people who were loyal to him and only him. Over the next decade, a series of attempted coups against Vargas and his government by constitutionalists, socialists, and fascists, so pretty much everybody, all failed. But they provided justification for the government to give Vargas yet more centralized power, and this eventually led to a formal declaration of Vargas as Brazil's dictator, which began a four-year period that's now called the Estado Novo, or Third Brazilian Republic Period, during which government brutality against citizens and anyone who opposed their rule was particularly monstrous and effective. After World War II, which Brazil stayed out of until mid-1942, after the Nazis and fascist Italy attacked the Brazilians over a separate maritime dispute, which caused Brazil to join on the side of the Allies, Vargas was overthrown by a military coup in 1945, during a period in which it wasn't a good look internationally to be a dictator or to have a dictator at the helm of your country. The same military that launched this new coup reinstated democracy in the country, and Vargas returned to power via election in 1950. But he committed suicide four years later during a political crisis of his own making. A few short-term interim governments, also elected, followed that suicide, during which time industrialization in the country stepped into high gear as was the case in many nations around the world post-World War II. Another military coup booted the then-president in 1964, which led to a military leadership that was supposed to be temporary, but once again turned into a dictatorship a few years later in 1968. This new dictatorship was especially repressive of artists, academics, journalists, scientists, and anyone else that it considered to be a threat to their ideology and their brutal implementation of it. But despite all this abuse, the government held on to power and accumulated more of it, in part because of the economic benefits of all that industrialization, which was making a lot of powerful people rich amidst all that broader-based suffering, and because of support from powerful outside entities, including the United States, which, as part of Operation Condor, helped the Brazilian government and other governments throughout the Americas essentially torture and kill anyone that those governments found to be inconvenient to their continued, often dictatorial rule, all in the name of Cold War-era hemispheric stability, and likely to prevent the Soviets from getting more toeholds in the region. In 1980, the government shifted back to democracy, after several years of small changes that added up to something significant, eventually. Civilians were back in charge of the government by 1985, and the economy, which was tilted into a period of hyperinflation by the recently departed military government, was eventually stabilized in 1994. The president who stabilized it, Fernando Cardoso, 
was peacefully succeeded by his political opponent, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, in 2002, a man often called just Lula by his supporters and by the press. And he introduced a series of well-regarded and sweeping social programs during his tenure and was re-elected in 2006, before being succeeded by his former chief of staff. During his tenure as president, though, Lula was considered to be the most popular politician in Brazilian history, and was the most popular politician in the world at that point, by some measures. Lula was then appointed chief of staff under his former chief of staff, who was now president, but his appointment was blocked due to investigations into Lula that resulted in a 2017 conviction for money laundering and corruption, part of a Supreme Court trial that was and remains very controversial, and which kept him from running for president in 2018 from prison. In late 2019, it was ruled that Lula's incarceration was unlawful, which led to his release from prison, and in March of 2021, a Supreme Court justice determined that Lula's convictions were not legitimate because he was tried by a court without jurisdiction over his case. This determination restored Lula's political rights, and reportedly, fresh out of prison, he now intends to run for president in Brazil's October 2022 election. What I'd like to talk about today is Brazil in mid-2021, and how things are under the current, very controversial, President Jair Bolsonaro. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Jair Bolsonaro served in the Brazilian military from 1977 until 1988, when he retired with the rank of captain. Shortly after moving to the military reserve, he was elected to the Rio de Janeiro City Council as a member of the conservative Christian Democratic Party, and in 1990, he was elected to the lower chamber of Congress, a position to which he was re-elected five more times after that. As a conservative of the Christian Democratic Party, he espoused traditional Christian conservative values during his time in office, like opposition to abortion, secularism, and anything related to homosexuality, including same-sex marriage. As his party began to shift to more liberal versions of the same policies, though, he remained staunchly traditional, moving even further to the right in some cases, and becoming known for his views that were considered to be far-right and populist in nature, instead of traditionally Christian and more broadly conservative. Bolsonaro also became known for being outspoken in his political opinions, which helped him attract attention and press when he ran for president in 2018 as a member of the Social Liberal Party, which is a far-right political party that he eventually dropped to help found an even further right political party. His political brand was that of an outsider who was intent on cleaning out all the corrupt politicians, and this framing of his views and the fact that he would often say unpopular things in a way that often made him more popular led to many comparisons between him and then-U.S. President Donald Trump, who used a similar playbook and had similar personal attributes. Bolsonaro won the presidency with 55.1% of the popular vote, and then, going against promises he made during his campaign to fill important government positions based on capability and knowledge and experience, rather than favoritism or personal loyalty, 
he placed loyal, primarily military, primarily far-right people in positions of power throughout his government, which led to a lot of intergovernment conflict because of this clash of purposes and ideologies between the people running it. In his early years as president, despite a flurry of controversies and scandals, Bolsonaro did fairly well in terms of public approval, in part because he managed to help end an economic crisis that had started in 2014, and because he was able to reduce crime rates in some major Brazilian cities. He also made some decisions that were very popular with captains of industry, like allowing more development in the Amazon rainforest, which I'll talk more about a little bit later, and eliminating regulations that made doing business more expensive or tedious, but which, while implemented, dramatically reduced pollution levels and greenhouse gas emissions, and reduced the threat of abuse faced by some minority groups. Now, all that said, the article I'd like to start with today comes from The Intercept, and it's entitled, Brazil Seeks to Hold Bolsonaro Accountable for More Than 400,000 COVID-19 Deaths. And that article has the subtitle, A New Commission is Investigating Jair Bolsonaro's Response to the Pandemic and Political Foes Are Gathering Strength. It's difficult to know where to start with the problems currently faced by Bolsonaro and the problems faced by Brazil as a consequence of his policies and actions. And I say that even though, until quite recently, Bolsonaro was quite popular. In some cases, popular in the same sense that Donald Trump has been popular in the United States. Absolutely loved to the point of worship by some, and absolutely hated as a representation of everything wrong with the world, by others. Bolsonaro has a similarly divisive approach to politics that is good at increasing the level of contrast in ideologies so that local political groups move further and further to the extremes, leaving little room for agreement or cross-aisle collaboration in the middle. Thus, in December of 2018, a survey released by the Brazilian National Confederation of Industry found that 75% of Brazilians thought that Bolsonaro was on the right path, with only 14% responding that they thought he was on the wrong path. Another survey from that same month found that 65% of respondents thought that the economy would improve under Bolsonaro's government, and in January of 2019, when he took office, 65% of respondents to another poll said that his administration would be great or good, with only 12% saying that they thought it would be awful. This optimism disappeared relatively quickly, though, with a similar poll published in mid-May of 2019 showing that only 34% of respondents thought that his administration would be great or good, a substantial drop that only got worse leading into 2020. By mid-2020, as the COVID-19 pandemic spread, however, Bolsonaro's approach of, at first, denying that the pandemic was real, then denying that it was as bad as the scientists were saying, then denying that it mattered, saying that it was no more deadly than the common flu, that it was all a fantasy made up by the media, and that he would be focusing on the economy, not silly, overblown health concerns that people who are strong and manly wouldn't need to worry about anyway. This approach was apparently comforting to many Brazilians who looked around at all the panic and devastation around the world, and then looked back at home and saw relative calm 
and a leader who seemed to be calling out the rest of the world for a lack of strength and willpower. And they thought, okay, this is pretty good, all things considered. Things seem to be good here compared to what's happening in the rest of the world. Some of that confidence spread by Bolsonaro, though, was predicated on intentionally hollow data and a strategy based on leaving states to fend for themselves rather than doing anything at the federal level, an approach that was also taken by Donald Trump in the United States and which was similarly ineffective or counterproductive there. Eventually, though, even the doctored local COVID numbers were surpassing those of other countries. Yet Bolsonaro continued to wade into crowds of his supporters without a mask, shaking hands, giving out hugs and kisses to anyone within reach, and generally very intentionally flouting the fact that he was ignoring all of the recommendations being made by a medical community that was increasingly reaching the Brazilian people and raising concerns about exactly that sort of behavior. In July of 2020, Bolsonaro announced that he had tested positive for COVID-19, announcing a negative test a few weeks later, but still maintaining throughout his opposition to vaccinations. His numbers, which were initially boosted by his unconcerned posture, had dipped at this point, possibly because of the rapidly increasing number of infections and deaths caused by the disease, and by the increasingly overwhelmed medical services that were struggling to keep up without federal support or organization. In early 2021, his approval ratings plummeted, in part due to comments made in the wake of a surge of COVID-linked deaths in the country. In response to criticisms about all of those deaths, Bolsonaro criticized new measures that were being implemented at the state level to reduce infection, things like vaccinations and masks and social distancing. And he told the public to stop whining. Actually, he said, quote, stop whining. How long are you going to keep crying about it, end quote. This, again, in response to newly announced data that indicated Brazil was seeing internationally record numbers of new infections and deaths caused by COVID-19. He also, around this same time, ended emergency payments that were being made to poor people during the pandemic, which had significantly boosted his popularity in 2020, but which, when the payment plan ended in December of that year, almost certainly contributed to his collapsing approval numbers. Now, in mid-May of 2021, when I'm recording this, the former president, Lula, who again is considered to have been one of the most popular politicians in Brazil ever, and who was the most popular politician in the world during his tenure as president, and who is much more socialist in his ideology compared to Bolsonaro's far-right populism, is reportedly laying the framework for a new presidential campaign to challenge the incumbent Bolsonaro in the upcoming 2020 presidential election in the wake of what would seem to be a catastrophic pandemic record amplified by his ho-hum approach to governance during this traumatic period and his myriad other scandals and abuses, many of which are now coming to light as his popularity wanes and a valid competitor seems primed to take the stage. This intercept piece touches on some of the genesis leading up to Bolsonaro's current situation, but focuses on a Senate-led inquiry into alleged COVID-related malfeasance by the president and his administration, malfeasance that could turn out to be impeachable. 
As of the day I'm recording this, there are about 15.2 million confirmed COVID cases in Brazil. About 13.5 million people are recorded as having recovered from the infection, and there have been around 423,000 deaths. These numbers are thought, as with most countries, to be undercounts of the true reality of both infections and deaths caused by COVID. But the Brazilian numbers are thought to be even further off than the numbers in most other countries because of decisions made by Bolsonaro and his administration that made tracking such things difficult. And part of this inquiry is to ascertain whether that difficulty arose through incompetence or design. It should be noted that Bolsonaro and his inner circle, including his family, have already been the targets of numerous corruption scandals and their accompanying inquiries, but those have all, thus far, rolled off his back and in some cases been blocked or otherwise thwarted by the so-called Centrale's influence. The Centrale being a collection of mid-spectrum political groups that tend to be the kingmakers in Brazil, deciding whether leftist or rightist politicians will take control, often making that decision based on which side will give them more handouts, either of the pork barrel throwing money at their districts through legal means variety, or in some cases, allegedly, through more underhanded, borderline illegal or outright corrupt methods. Bolsonaro originally came to power with a vehement anti-corruption, anti-throwing-money-at-the-central message, but a low-level civil war between far-right factions that originally launched him to power and diminishing support from the public have required that he start to play that game, throwing billions of government dollars at leaders of various central political groups. And this, in turn, has required cuts in health, election, and other fundamental funding expenditures, which has consequently led to even further collapsing public approval numbers. That central support, though, has allowed him to pretty much cruise through political life without having to worry about public approval. They tend to control a great deal of congressional activity, so he could theoretically have a 0% approval rating and still be somewhat untouchable, as far as structural government threats are concerned, at least. An upcoming set of constitutionally required spending limits, though, could truncate the funds that he has available for these pork barrel incentives for the Centrale, and some of this block have already left him for more popular political pastures, in part due to his low ratings in Brazil, and in part because of the negative attention that he has been drawing to the country internationally, with his pandemic-era spreading of misinformation and outright denial of medical reality. That negative attention has been amplified by other acts that, though popular with some local interest groups, have made a highly populous and economically important nation something of a pariah ideologically, as the world's wealthy governments in particular shift toward green energy and an increasingly serious set of greenhouse gas emission policies Bolsonaro has allowed 430,000 acres of Amazon rainforest to be logged or burned in early 2021 from January 1st through April 4th alone, an area about 30 times the size of Manhattan in New York. 
This is the consequence of decisions made by Bolsonaro to reduce enforcement of regulations related to the Amazon region. Past Brazilian administrations for decades have been fairly ardent defenders of this rainforest, which is considered to be vital to the planet's carbon dioxide equilibrium system. Levying heavy fines and destroying expensive equipment owned by people and companies that violated stringent limitations placed on such activity in the Amazon area. Bolsonaro, in practice, if not always officially, has dropped many of these regulations and rejected foreign aid that would have helped the government deal with wildfires that are often the result of these logging activities, decisions that were thought to be at least partly motivated by his desire to see more of this area converted into agriculturally productive land. His behavior related to the pandemic, then, is only one more nail in what analysts are increasingly seeing as his political career's coffin. The Intercept, which does generally good reporting work, but also presents its news with an ideological, often pretty anti-establishment slant, which is why this quote has some very clear editorial bias baked into the wording, so keep that in mind, they outlined Bolsonaro's COVID-era behavior pretty starkly in this article when it said, quote, Bolsonaro has done just about everything in his power to help the coronavirus kill as many Brazilians as possible. As president, he has forcefully discouraged mask use, rejected offers from vaccine manufacturers, fought against lockdowns, held back federal funds to fight the virus, actively promoted ineffective treatments with dangerous side effects, and slashed funding for science and health. When backed into a corner, he has repeatedly suggested that he could use the military to impose martial law, or even undertake a coup d'etat if pushed too far. End quote. And that last point brings us to where we are now, and gestures at what might happen next. Brazil has a long history of coups, and Bolsonaro has many times decried the current state of democratic government, fondly recounting how wonderful things were for the country when it was ruled by a dictator who came to power through the military. In April of 2021, when all the experts were suggesting more stringent lockdown measures and a new surge of infections was beginning in Brazil, Bolsonaro said that he might call the army into cities to patrol the streets and take control if proposed lockdown measures caused people to protest. He said that he is the supreme head of the armed forces and could call the military in to, quote, reestablish Article 5 of the Constitution, end quote, an article that mentions civilian rights to freedom of movement and the freedom of religion. This declaration heightened concerns that Bolsonaro might call in the military if his political fortunes start to suffer too badly to the point where he fears he might lose power or be punished for his corrupt actions. This fear arose early on in his administration when he began replacing career experts throughout the government with military-sourced loyalists, but it's arisen once more in light of his diminished and still diminishing fortunes and the possibility that he might lose the upcoming election to former President Lula. Also, on March 30th, of 2021, the leaders of all three branches of Brazil's armed forces 
quit after Bolsonaro replaced the defense minister with a loyalist, and it's thought that they were getting out because they didn't want to get pulled into politics, and it seemed like Bolsonaro was trying to set things up so that he could use the military as a cudgel in any political fights he got into in the future. A new poll from early May of 2021 showed that Bolsonaro's approval ratings may have gone up slightly from the previous month, from 35 to 40%, though his disapproval, according to that same poll, is still at 57%, which is about what Lula had in the opposite metric, approval. So if an election were held today, there's a very good chance that Lula would have a victory, and a runaway victory at that. A lot can happen between now and late 2022, though, and there's a chance that some of Bolsonaro's international gambles, like asking the United States and other wealthy countries for billions of dollars in exchange for reducing Amazon rainforest damage, could pan out, economically and politically. It's also possible that Bolsonaro will pass a currently in-discussion new monetary assistance program, which will see more government dollars handed out to poor people who are suffering as a result of the pandemic. And there's always the chance that Lula will do something controversial, stupid, or provably corrupt, which could knock him back off the ticket. And there doesn't seem to be another competitor with the same popularity, name recognition, or level of prestige and power required to challenge Bolsonaro should Lula disappear from the ballot. Ultimately, Brazil is the largest country in South America, both in terms of land area and population, the fifth largest and sixth most populous in the world. There are more than 211 million Brazilians, and it's very influential economically, in part because it serves as one of the planet's major breadbasket countries, producing more coffee than any other country, but also all sorts of food, including the increasingly economically vital soybean. In other words, although it doesn't always get the airtime that other countries receive internationally, what's happening in Brazil right now is important to everyone. In terms of what happens to the Amazon rainforest and other climactically important regions, and because of what it might foretell for folks living within its borders, and for everyone else connected to what happens within those borders globally, which increasingly is all of us. book that I'd like to recommend today is called Imperial Twilight, The Opium War, and the End of China's Last Golden Age by Stephen R. Platt. This book is exactly what it sounds like based on the title. It is a deep dive into the history of China's imperial period with a particular focus on what happened leading up to, during, and just after the Opium War, which was a collection of conflicts between imperial China and mostly European nations that wanted to trade with China, and in many cases to benefit from some kind of exclusive type of trade for certain objects and materials that could be had there, like tea, that were very difficult to come by or impossible to come by elsewhere in the world at that point. It also documents in a very interesting way how opium and drugs of this sort play a very outsized role in these types of conflicts and the spread of all sorts of wealth and other materials throughout the world. 
Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Imperial Twilight by Stephen R. Platt. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can subscribe to my daily newsletter in which I curate and summarize the news each morning at onesentencenews.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.